Happy Father's Day, everybody. Yeah, I'm really excited about this Father's Day because on Friday, Terry and I became brand new first-time grandparents. How about that? Yeah, and wait, it gets better. Then I found out this morning that there's something called Grandparents' Day, September 9th. So I'm hoping there's presents involved in that as well. So looking forward to that. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad all of you dads are here. We're going to celebrate you. We're going to honor you in just a moment. But before we do, I need to clear something up. There is some confusion, and it's this. It's the fact that I'm preaching on Satan and demons on Father's Day, purely coincidental. All right, dads, no subliminal hidden message there. You know, it's interesting, growing up in church, at least in the church that I grew up in, how different we as a church celebrated Mother's Day versus Father's Day. On Mother's Day, we honored and celebrated moms, and it seemed like the preacher always preached a message on how awesome moms are, and they are, usually Proverbs 31 telling moms what a great job they were doing. But then on Father's Day, for some reason, it seemed like preachers would always beat fathers over the head, you know, pointing out all their flaws and and failures and all the ways they come up short. And then we wonder why Mother's Day is one of the highest attended Sundays of the year and Father's Day is one of the least attended Sundays of the year. Go figure. So dads, I'm just telling you, here at Cedar Creek Church, nothing but love, nothing but props, no condemnation, nothing but encouragement. And I hope you feel and sense that today. And so I'm going to ask all of you with me to help us honor our dads. And here's how we're going to do this. Dads, you remain seated. And I'm going to ask everybody else at all of our campuses, stand up and let's show these dads some love and encouragement. Come on. Yeah. All right, so remain standing. Remain standing, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for the dads, but here's what I need you to do. I need you, if you're sitting near a dad, or if you see a dad where nobody's sitting around him, just maybe put a hand on their shoulder, just to let them know they're supported, they're encouraged, and you join me in praying for them where you are, as I pray for them collectively. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these dads. And I know as a dad that so often we feel like we failed. So often we feel like we don't measure up and we haven't done the things that we need to do. But Father, I know that is the enemy. That is not your voice. And I pray for every dad here that they would feel your presence. They would feel your touch, your love. And I pray that all of us, no matter where we are as dads, that we would be able to look to you as the perfect example, our Heavenly Father. And no matter what's in our past, no matter what's going on in our present, that we would take one step to be more like you. So, Father, give us the courage. Bless the dads here today with your love, your strength, and your power. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. 
And all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, if you're taking your seat, if you'll grab your message notes for those of you who are new, or if you've been out for a couple of weeks, we're on this journey looking at the stranger things in the Bible. We're focusing on some of the more weird and unusual aspects of our faith. In, in week one, we talked about this weird thing called spiritual warfare. That there's this unseen battle that takes place in the universe between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And as, as weird as that seems to us, what we discovered as Christ followers is that we are engaged, we are a part of that battle. And we discovered some very practical ways to be a part of fighting the good fight. And then last week, we talked about this really weird thing called the Holy Spirit. This idea that somehow the God of the universe, the creator of it all, somehow when we become followers of Jesus, places his full spirit, his power and his presence inside of us. And as weird as that seems, what we discovered is some practical ways to, to allow God's spirit to move and work in our lives and to allow the gifts that the Spirit gives us to be able to help and serve and make a positive difference in the lives of people around us. Now today, we're going to look at one of the strangest things of all, one of the most confusing and maybe in some ways most controversial aspects of our faith, and that is this issue of Satan and demons. These uh, supernatural forces of evil that exist in our world and have a huge influence over our world. We have a lot of questions, even within the church, even those of us who have been believers for a long time. In fact, let me just ask, how many of you have some unanswered questions about Satan and demons? Things that you kind of wish you would know. Yeah, that's almost all of us. And how many of you would like some practical help in dealing with the Satan and demons and their influences in your life, your family, and your world? Anybody? Besides me, yeah, well, you've come to the right place because what I want to do this morning is spend just a few minutes, first of all, separating fact from fiction. So many of the things we think or believe about Satan and demons come not from God's Word, but from pop culture, from things we see in movies or books or even documentaries that are portrayed as truth. And so there's a lot of misinformation, and so we want to look at some of the basic facts about Satan and demons, and then I want us to spend some time looking at some practical ways to fight back. Some practical ways to respond to Satan and demons and their impact in our world and in our lives. So let's get started with the facts. The facts about Satan and demons. Now there's a lot of information about Satan and demons found throughout the Bible, but there are three core passages that sort of give us the story of the origin of Satan and demons. And I put those passages on your outline because I'm hoping that you will spend some time reading them this week. And, and maybe in your home group it would be a good idea to, to go through these passages and see what they tell us about Satan and demons. But the basic storyline is this, that Satan started as an angel. And not just any angel, but the chief angel in the highest class of all angels. In fact, the Hebrew word for Satan was son of the morning star. The morning star, which translated into Latin and then into English 
is the name Lucifer. That's where that name comes from. It means the morning star. And if you read that Old Testament passage there, it tells you that he was the most beautiful of all the angels, the most powerful, the most amazing angel ever. And perhaps that's why Lucifer decided that he didn't want to be a worshiper of God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to ascend the mount of God. He, he wanted to be worshipped as a God. And so he rebelled against God. And the Revelations passage tells us that he apparently convinced angels, some of the angels, to join him in his rebellion against God. And God does not tolerate rebellion. And so he threw Satan and these other angels out of heaven into the earth and under the earth. There's a lot of different words and phrases used there, but they were removed from the presence of God. That's the basic story of where Satan and demons come from. Now, that's a lot of weird stuff, and it's like, when did that happen? There's a lot of you know, different ideas about that. Some scholars think as many as the third of the angels were cast out of heaven along with Satan, and those are the demons, his minions. A lot of stuff going on there, but here are the facts. From all of that kind of crazy, weird story, here are the facts that we need to focus on when it comes to Satan and demons. You ready? Fact number one, they are real. They are real. Satan and demons are not some metaphor for evil that was just used by the ancient biblical writers because they didn't know how to explain it. They are created beings and they are just as real as any other thing created by God. Now, people will ask me a lot of time, because I spend a lot of time talking to people who are not believers, didn't grow up in the church, or are skeptical of the Bible. I get that, and I love having those conversations. And sometimes they'll ask me, Philip, you really believe like there's a real Satan and there are real demons? And I'm like, yeah, and it kind of freaks them out, because they're like, we never would expect that of you. You know, you don't seem like one of those weird religious holy rollers. You seem kind of educated, pretty normal guy. Why in the world would you believe that Satan and demon are real. Here's why I believe it. Because Jesus believed it. See, Satan and demons don't just show up in the Old Testament. They don't just show up in the prophetic uh, books of the Bible that use imagery and symbolism like Revelation and the book of Daniel. They're found throughout the Bible in the New Testament, including in the Gospels. These historical narratives of Jesus' life. And on 25 different occasions that we know of that are recorded in the Bible, Jesus has direct personal interaction with Satan and his demons. In fact, a quarter of all of Jesus' miracles, parables, and works are somehow related or in response to demonic activity. It's throughout the Bible. Archibald Brown, the great preacher and evangelist from the early 20th century, said the existence of Satan and demons is so clear in Scripture that to doubt them is to literally doubt the Bible itself. Satan and demons are not mythical, mystical, metaphorical creatures. They are created beings. They are angels who fell from grace. They are real. That's fact number one. Fact number two, not only are they real, but they are powerful. Satan and demons are powerful. You might remember I said this two weeks ago. You have a very real spiritual enemy. And he's not some fat guy in a red jumpsuit with horns and a pitchfork. He's a very powerful, very crafty, very cunning enemy. 
In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter was trying to explain to the early church in, the, in his writings what Satan was like. He wanted them to understand what Satan was like, and he used the imagery of a lion. He said, your enemy Satan is like a prowling lion. Why would he use that imagery? Because at that time in that place, a lion was the, most, the fiercest, most dangerous predator there was. That's how powerful Satan and demons are. They are real, they are powerful. Now, before you get all freaked out about that, before you go out here going, oh, they're everywhere, they're real, they're powerful, there's a third fact, and I think this is the most important fact for us as Christians to understand about angels and demons, and it is this, they are limited. Satan and demons are limited. As powerful as they are, they are limited in what they can and cannot do. Understand, because they are created beings, they are not equal to God. God and God alone is sovereign. God is in control of everything. And so they're not equal to God. They don't have the immutable character traits of God. Satan is not omniscient like God is. He doesn't know everything that has happened, will happen, or is going to happen. He does not know your thoughts. He cannot read your mind. He is not God. He is not omniscient. Satan and demons are also not omnipresent. Unlike God, they cannot be in all places at all times. They are limited. And here's their greatest limitation. Because Satan and demons were created by God, they are subject to God's plan and God's purposes. The Bible tells us that everything in heaven and on earth and everything under the earth was created by God for God, for His ultimate purposes. And so you kind of see that throughout Scripture. Throughout the New Testament, whenever a demon or Satan was confronted by a believer or by Jesus, in Jesus' name, they had to obey because they are subject, they are limited in their power. Now, those are the facts. Those are the basic core facts about Satan and demon. And as I look at those three facts, here's the takeaway for me. Here's what this says to me as a believer about Satan and demons, that I am not to take them lightly, nor am I to live in fear of them. What these facts tell me is that I am to have a healthy respect for my enemy, but not live trembling in defeat and fear. Back in the day when I was coaching high school sports, one of the hardest things for us as coaches to do was to try to make sure our team had a healthy respect for their opponent, no matter who that opponent was. Because there were some weeks we played some teams that were horrible. They were horrible every year. They were small, they were slow, they were not well coached, and it was very difficult to keep the team motivated because they're thinking, all i got to do is show up. If we just show up, we will beat them. And guess what? That is not always true. You take your opponent too lightly, and a weaker opponent will defeat you. Some of you who are Gamecock fans remember, right, the Citadel. That's what happens when you take a enemy too lightly. So we are not to take them too lightly. The other thing we would struggle with as coaches sometimes is we played teams that were dominant. 
They were big and mean and fast and well coached. They showed up on three or four buses, had dressed out, covered the whole sideline. We had like 30 kids. And it was hard to not have our team be overwhelmed and just decide we can't beat them no matter how good we play. You need that healthy respect as a believer when it comes to your enemy, Satan, and his demons. And I believe the key to striking that balance comes from understanding their tactics. To understand how Satan and demons fight against us, how they come against us, how they oppose us. The key is knowing how they operate. That's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, In order that Satan might not outwit us, how? For we are not unaware of his schemes. In other words, the more aware we are of Satan and his schemes, the more likely we are to have victory over him rather than becoming victims of him. Two weeks ago, I shared with you Satan's number one tactic. Satan's go-to move, his signature move. Does anybody remember what it was? If you do, just shout it out. Anybody? Pride, very good. I feel, really? You guys are awesome. I feel good as a teacher. You remember that? Yeah, pride is his number one tactic, but it's not his only tactic. Satan has a lot of different ways he comes against us. And I think one of the ways, best ways to see his tactics can be seen in his names. The names that Satan has given. There are over 20 different names for Satan throughout the Bible. And I believe the three most common names of Satan reveal his most common tactics that are used against us. See, most of us, when we think of satanic and demonic opposition, we go right to the paranormal. We immediately think of the weird, you know, the exorcist, head spinning around, levitating, vomiting, green. We think, that's Satan, that's demons, that's, that's what that looks like. I'm not saying that Satan doesn't or can't operate that way. I've never seen it, but I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I have some friends who are strong believers, mature believers, and they've experienced in other people's lives that they were helping that kind of demonic activity. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, I'm just saying that's very rare. That those sorts of attacks or demonic opposition are the exception, not the rule. The, the most common ways that Satan comes against us with his demons are much more subtle, much easier to miss. And there are three of them based on his names I want us to look at. One of the, the tactics of Satan is to use the world around us. Satan loves to use the world around us. That's why Jesus in John chapter 12 refers to Satan as the prince of this world. Now what do we mean by world? I'm not talking about this physical earth that we live on. I'm talking about the broken systems and philosophies and ways of this world. Because the ways of this world are in rebellion against God. How many of you would agree with that, that this world is in rebellion? Yeah, you don't, have to be, you don't even have to be a believer. Just turn on the news. It is obvious that this world is an evil, broken place. And so this world is influenced by Satan. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in that world and not even recognize that Satan is moving us further away from God. Here, here's how I visualize it in my mind. I think of this world that we live in as a giant river, a big river that is flowing in one direction and is always flowing away from God. 
that it's always moving away from God. We always think it's our generation. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The world's been going to hell in a handbasket since the minute that Adam and Eve sinned. It's just we see our generation. But it has always been moving away from God. But listen, we have to live in that river. We are not of that river, Jesus said, but you are in that river. And here's the thing, since you're in a river that's moving away from God, if you're not intentionally swimming upstream, you're going to end up further away from God and not even realize it, right? Nobody wakes up and goes, I'm going to serve Satan. I'm going to get evil to rule in the world. I'm going to take, nobody wakes up like that except the James Bond villains, but people don't do that. What happens over time, not intentional about their faith, about pushing back against this world, they end up being influenced by Satan and used by him through this broken world. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 2, do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father but are from this world. And can I just tell you from my own journey, the more we try to satisfy our souls with the stuff of the world, the more empty our lives will be and the further from God we'll drift. Satan loves to use this broken world to come against us. The second thing, the second tactic that Satan loves to use is not just the world around us, but the temptation within us. The temptation within us. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, Paul calls Satan the tempter. Because that's who he is. That's what he loves to do. In fact, Jesus' most significant encounter directly with Satan was all about temptation. So what is temptation? Where does it come from? How does temptation work? Well, I think the best explanation of that is from James chapter 1, verse 14. Check out what it says. Everyone, that's all of us, everyone is tempted by his what? What does that say? His own desires as they lure him away and trap him. I want you to circle the word lure. James says that's how Satan works. He takes your desires, these good God-given desires within you, and he lures you away. Now when I think of lure, I immediately think of fishing, right? Like a fishing lure. What is a fishing lure? It's something that is artificial, but it looks real. It looks like a worm. It looks like a fish. It looks like a bug. Only it's not. It's fake, and it's full of hooks. And that's what temptation is. Satan loves to use counterfeit means to meet legitimate needs. Satan would love for you to, to meet legitimate needs in an illegitimate way. He wants you to go for the counterfeit. See, God has put some great godly desires in all of our lives. For example, the desire for significance. said a couple of weeks ago, God has placed eternity in the heart of every one of us. That's a desire to leave an impact, to make a difference bigger than ourselves. That is a good, holy, God-given desire. What Satan does is said, don't meet that desire through legitimate means. Don't do it through service or humility or being kind to others. Go for the quick route. Go for the counterfeit. Go for power. Go for possessions. Go for position in your life. And we see that counterfeit, but it looks so real, and boom, we bite, and we're hooked. 
Or, or maybe the, the issue is intimacy. God has placed a desire for intimacy with another human being in the heart of every one of us. Not just physical intimacy, but actually that true deep intimacy. That's what phys good physical intimacy comes from. That deep desire to connect authentically with another human being, to know and to be known. That is a God-given desire. And that desire is meant to be met in the context of a biblical marriage. But a biblical marriage is hard. That's work. And so Satan says, you don't have to put in all that work. You can have intimacy here. Go for the cheap sex. Go for the one-night stand. Or you don't need a person that says, go for pornography. You understand that is what pornography is. Pornography is not just feeding on your lust. Pornography is feeding on your God-given desire for intimacy. And pornography is counterfeit intimacy. And it seems so real. And it seems so easy. And boom, you're bought and you're hooked. Satan's got you. That's how he operates. You better understand this about Satan and his demons. They are expert fishermen. They know what lure you're most likely to bite. You say, wait a minute, Phil. You said they can't read my mind. No, they can't. But all they got to do is watch you for more than 10 minutes. We reveal our weaknesses. You don't know the things that you're weak for, the things that tempt you. Ask somebody that really knows you. Because it's so obvious, and yet we don't see it in ourselves. And here's what's crazy, evil, sneaky about Satan. He throws the counterfeit lure, tricks you, and you bite it. And then once you've bitten it, he's like, how could you bite that? He throws guilt and shame. You, God could never love you. You could never be forgiven. He attacks us on the front end with temptation and then on the back end with guilt and shame. He is an enemy. And you've got to understand that he works through the world around us the temptation within us, and then here's the third one, the lies we tell ourselves. Satan loves the lies we tell ourselves. That's why Jesus, in John chapter 8, calls Satan the father of lies. What does that mean that Satan is the father of lies? It means that all lies come from him. All lies. See, there's nobody in here today would say, well, yeah, it's okay to lie. Nobody believes that. Everybody knows it's bad to lie, even if you're not a Christ follower. Lying is bad. We don't have a problem with that. Where we get stuck is, but what about a little white lie? Can, can I just tell a little lie if it doesn't hurt somebody's feelings? Because isn't it more important not to hurt somebody's feelings than to be truthful? Or, or our little lies, we just tell part of the truth? Or we exaggerate the truth and we think it's not a lie? Years ago, when one of our sons was in his first year of college, he'd been away first semester, maybe a couple of weeks, and he called me one day. He said, Dad, I need your help. And I was like, what is it? He said, is there anywhere in the Bible where it says it's okay to lie? Now, if you have a son in college and he calls and asks you that question, you better perk up and pay attention. So I'm like, what's going on, buddy? That's not a good question. You know, you it, well, here was the thing. There was somebody that if he told them the truth, it would hurt them. And he didn't want to do that. He's a compassionate person. He didn't want to hurt them. And so he was looking for a loophole, looking for a way. And he said, is it ever okay to lie? Interesting question. How would you answer that, Dad? Mom? How would, is it ever okay to lie? I'll tell you what I told him. No. No, no, no. It is never okay. 
okay to lie. And you're like, Philip, that is a bold statement. Why can you say that? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus says all lies come from Satan. Big lies, little lies, exaggerations, partial truth, they all come from Satan. He's the father of lies. Look at Psalm 51.6. David writes, you, talking to God, you want me to be what? What does that say? Completely truthful. Circle the word completely. If something is 98% true, what is it? It's a lie. And Satan loves to play in that 2%. Picture of that in Genesis, right? Eve and Satan in the form of a snake. God says, you got the whole garden you can eat and have everything in it. One limitation, this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For your own protection, do not eat that fruit. What does Satan come along and say to Eve? God said you can't eat any of the fruit from any of these trees. No, what an exaggeration, right? No, Eve said no. He just said we couldn't eat from the fruit of that one tree. In fact, he said not only could we not eat it, but we couldn't even touch it. Lie. God never said that. And so Satan lies. Eve responds with a lie. And you start down that slippery slope of lying, and it leads to destruction. It leads to destruction in your relationships. It destroys trust, and trust is not easy to rebuild. It destroys integrity, and integrity is not easy to rebuild. And Satan loves to use those little 2% lies to destroy our life. That's how he operates. You're not going to levitate on your bed and your head going to spin around, but every day you're going to struggle with the world and its systems, with the desires within you when you try to meet them in ungodly ways, and with the playing fast and loose with truth and integrity. And as I, I look at these tactics and I look at the reality of Satan and demons, it just begs this question, how do I fight this? How do I fight back? And there are a lot of ways to do that. And the Bible gives us all kinds of practical tools, but I think the clearest, most simple instructions to fighting back against the enemy is found in James chapter 4. I love how simple and practical James is. Here's what he says, dealing with the devil, here's the way you fight back. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Simple, clear, two-point strategy to fighting the enemy. One, James says, just resist the devil. Just resist him. In other words, don't go with the flow. Actively resist the things around you that you know are from him. What does it mean to resist, to actively resist? It means stay away from. Don't flirt with. Put as much distance as possible between you and the things of Satan. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Let's say you struggle with anger issues. You, you, you have a lack of self-control, and it shows up on social media. Somebody puts something you disagree with, it's like you get possessed by Satan. You, you start typing all this stuff and hit post, and then you regret it, and you know it's an issue. And you're like, i got to stop doing that. So what do you do? Do you delete your Facebook and Instagram? No. You just say, I'm not going to type on it, but I'm going to keep, you know, 
being a troll. I'm going to just keep reading. I'm not going to respond. And you get close to that edge and close to that edge, and then finally somebody says something and you can't take it anymore, and here you go doing the same thing you used to do. You got too close to the edge. You didn't resist. You didn't push back. You didn't put enough between you and the cliff. Let's say you struggle with lust. You struggle with intimacy and, you know, maybe pornography is a struggle for you. And you're like, I'm going to break that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to resist that. So you put all kinds of software on your laptop and you have accountability out. You have all of that stuff on your life. I'm not going to get sucked into that again. And then what do you do? You go to Walmart and you, you pick up a copy of Maxim or Cosmopolitan magazine because it's not pornography. It's not outside of the bounds. And so you get as close to the cliff as you can because you think that's giving you freedom. Christ has set us free. We are free indeed. We are not free to get as close to the dangerous edge of the cliff as possible. We are free to live in the grace a long way away from the cliffs that destroy our life. Resist. Resist. Put some distance. And then second, James says, humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before God. Some translations say, submit yourself to God. It means the same thing. Just surrender to Him. Recognize that He is the one that fights this battle for you. See, the reason humility is such an effective tool against Satan is because it's the antidote to its greatest weapon, pride. I believe one of the biggest dangers that we, especially as mature believers, have is spiritual arrogance. We are in danger when we get spiritually arrogant. Oh, I'll never have an affair. And so we take down our boundaries and we get a little too close to that person at work. Or I'll never become an addict, but it's okay, I'm going to drink a good bit on the weekend. But it's never going to happen to me. That spiritual arrogance is dangerous in our lives. Any Christ follower can fall into any sin given the right set of circumstances. Let me say that again. I don't care how old you've been, how spiritually mature you are. You're a home group leader, a coach, you're a preacher, anybody. I don't care how much of a strong Christ follower you are. You can fall into any sin given the right set of circumstances. The more prideful you are, here's what happens. The more you think you can deal with your enemy on your own. Your pride says, I can handle this. I can deal with that. And you try to fight in your own strength and power. And let me tell you, every time you do that, you are headed for a beatdown from Satan. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible takes place in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul goes into the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus had a huge occult population, all kind of occultic practices. And so there were a lot of people living in Ephesus who had demons within them. And so Paul comes into Ephesus, and he starts casting out demons in Jesus' name, left and right. And people are seeing that, and there were seven brothers, seven the sons of Sceva, who was a priest. Leave it to the preacher's kids to get in trouble. They see what Paul's doing, they're like, we ought to do that too, because that is so cool. Not because they cared about freeing other people, or they weren't even Christ followers. They're just like, casting out demons is cool. Let's try that. So these seven idiots go into the house of a man who is possessed by a demon, and they say, in the name of Jesus, who is preached by Paul, we command you, demon, to come out. 
And the demon, through the possessed man, looks at them and says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Now let me just tell you, if a demon ever says that to you, run, Forrest, run, get out of there. And then notice what happens. This is crazy, verse 16. It says, then the man who had the evil spirit, he jumped on them, all seven of them, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Let me just tell you something. If you ever come out of a fight naked, you've been whooped. You have been beat down. And that's what happens when you try to take on Satan in the pride of your own power and own strength and own willpower. Now, that's a funny story, but let me just tell you, the reality when that happens is anything but funny. Because some of you, some of us sitting in here today have been trying to fight Satan in our own power, and we have been beat down. We've been beat down by that temptation because every time, we're never again, never again, and then we're in over our head. Maybe there's a habit and we keep trying to break it with our own power instead of God, and it keeps overwhelming us. We've been trying to get Satan out of our marriage, Satan out of our families, and we've been trying to do it by working harder, being more religious, and we just get beat down. And if that's you, like it's me today, I want to offer you some instruction and some encouragement as you leave here today. It's this last verse on your outline. 1 John 4, 4. Take this with you today. It says, you have already won a victory. You've already won. Why? Because the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. And that, friends, is all we need for victory against our enemy. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you. In a world and in a time when it just seems like the enemy is winning, the enemy is destroying families every day, the enemy is destroying lives, destroying communities, destroying churches, destroying pastors and leaders and teachers, destroying everything around us. Father, in the midst of all of that, may we not leave here feeling defeated and overwhelmed, but may we leave here with a sense of victory. Not victory in our own abilities, not victory because of our own strength or our own spiritual growth, but recognizing the victory that comes in your name. Because that is the only victory That is the only weapon that we truly have against our enemy is your powerful name. May we speak it not in just songs that we sing or Bible studies that we attend, but may we live out your name and the power of that name in the dirty and broken details of our daily life. Oh God, we need you. Show your power through your people, your church. And it's in that powerful name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.